Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Seb Stafford-Bloor from Football 365, and Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst. This crisis is still playing out in professional football. It's not a pretty sight. With threats of legal action multiplying and predictions of mass unemployment increasing, it's getting tough. When a manager of Nigel Clough's quality and integrity becomes an unaffordable luxury, you begin to understand just how much will change. He's left the club to which he's given 16 years of his life through no fault of his own. They simply couldn't afford it. Aid, the job of management, which we all mythologise, is absolutely changing at all levels, isn't it? (laughs) It feels that way, doesn't it? Yeah, it's certainly going to be a, a different environment for the managers that do stay in their jobs. And, uh, and you wonder how many more might might move on in the weeks and months to come. But first and foremost, on Nigel Clough, just one small caveat. And, and, I, and I do think it's a, a fabulous gesture on his part. But I do know that, that he was, was looking, I think, to, to move on from Burton Albion anyway, in terms of the future. I think he felt that he'd, he'd taken it as far as he, he'd been. I, I We interviewed him on a, on a different podcast not so long ago, and he was fairly honest about that. So I don't suspect he'll be out of work for too long. I think he knows that, that there are interested parties elsewhere. So, But nevertheless, in the short term, very, very good gesture. In, in terms of man management or, or management, I think First and foremost, they've got to look after players, haven't they, at the moment? Because there's some worrying stats that that emerged this week about about footballers feeling low and having you know symptoms of of depression during the lockdown, and, and managers are going to have to to show a lot of a lot of care and and help those players out mentally as well as physically trying to get them up to speed. So so that's a that's another strand to what's already an extremely complicated job. And and behind the scenes as well, I think a lot more thought is going to have to go into the training sessions because they, they're used to having their own way. They're used to, to putting on sessions that suit them and suit the, suit the time. But now they're effectively being told 
there are certain restrictions on the way they can train and 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 therefore they're gonna have to really get thinking and be creative and try and make sessions interesting during this first stage because if they're not interesting if they're boring if if players are are not enjoying them or feel they're not getting too much out of it then there's another problem on your hands outside of everything else that's going on so yeah who'd be a manager anytime but right now it's uh, it's not ideal yeah a, a new model probably has to emerge from this doesn't it seb and that probably would be in the shape of someone like you know a frank lampard who is is coming across as a very mature empathetic leader do you agree with that yeah very empathetic leader very human leader mike because i think that's one of the the aspects of this which has been missed is the the humanity behind it and the compassion it doesn't surprise me that frank lampard has been the sort of the poster child for the for the, the good parts of this because actually that's indicative of the way chelsea have been all the way through they've communicated very clearly with you know their public but also seemingly with their non-playing staff too I just found it very heartening that obviously with specific reference to the N'Golo Kante situation where day before last Kante came to training decided that he wasn't comfortable I'm unsure as we speak of what N'Golo Kante's personal circumstances are whether he's got vulnerable relatives or whatever the case may be but that he felt able to say to his manager and to his club I'm not comfortable I think that reflects really well on Chelsea and Lampard and the rest of the, the support staff there. Also, it's worth saying that, I mean, it's speculative, but I wonder whether the same would have been true at a lot of other clubs, whether some sort of sly briefing would have happened, whether it would have been a kind of, right, well, this is what the players decided to do unilaterally, so direct your anger towards him or your, your questions. I I like the idea that that sort of culture exists at Chelsea where these kind of conversations would take, would take place. That we're talking about it at all indicates really that we don't believe that the same would be true elsewhere because I I think one of the most unpleasant aspects of this saga has been the way certain people have been thrown under the bus and the kind of you know you know that old sort of maxim about not having to outrun bears just how having to outrun the, the other people running away from the bear that's <laughs> kind of what it's been like for football it's been we don't have to be perfect we just have to be less bad than you because <laughs> that's what's going to attract the uh, the media's attention or the public's attention. But I, you know, I, I certainly think more people could uh, could do with following Chelsea's example here. Yeah, there, there's you know there's a horrible phrase which you you hear a lot in political circles about the optics of a situation. And I suppose when you look at football, you've got clubs threatening to sue the EFL. You've got clubs bickering uh, about you know the the model that they're going to use for promotion, relegation, even if the season's going to start again. You've got a club like Hull, who, let's be honest, were absolutely tanking and were probably relegation certainties, acting in self-interest. They want the season done. We're in a situation socially where, you know, and financially and everything else, where perspective is needed. And football doesn't seem to have that perspective. Am I am I being a bit of a bit of a misery guts? Or not? <laughs> oh, always a misery guts, don't you, Mike? That's, that's why we love you. Uh, <laughs> we're, just, we're just so happy, me and Seb the whole time. We've got to balance things out, haven't we? Yeah, the chuckle brothers. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think communi- the comms. It's been a bit of a comms disaster, hasn't it? This whole thing 
in regards to, to football, the, the crisis hasn't been handled brilliantly. The bottom line is everyone's looking after their own back, aren't they? And it's leaving a bit of a bit of a sour taste. Yeah, I mean, Hull, I mean, I, I, I think they're going to be shot down, fortunately, and, and the championship does look like it it will continue. But, but yeah, the football clubs are only really interested in the scenarios that suit them. It's as simple as that. And, and it is a shame. It's, it's a shame that there's not more shared shared unity, shared thinking here. And and I do, I still stand by it. I think we've been talking about this for, for, for a while now. We haven't had great leadership from, from the top. We really haven't. We haven't had anyone really calling the shots. It's been a sort of open floor because that open floor has got so many different divisive opinions that we, we don't seem to have made a great deal of progress. So uh, fingers crossed we, we can somehow get there. Yeah, I, I suppose if you look at, you know, Rick Perry, I think, has had a good war so, so far. There's a lot of talk there about salary caps, um, squads being slashed from 28 to 20 senior players with all the, mm. you know, the fallout from that. You know, there's some mm. talk this morning of of hundreds of the 1,400 players in the in the EFL who are out of contract, not getting a club, not getting mm. a career even. Mm. Where are we with this? Because this industry, which fo- football is, is a game that we love, but it's an industry that we we probably don't love that much. Where's it going? It's it's basically going down the plug hole, isn't it? <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, personally, I just, I just think it'd be slimmed down. I mean, we all want football back. It, 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 we, in the, I just fear for the next season. Personally, I mean, I just don't know how the EFL is going to function next season. And and, and while, while you just brought that up, Mike, very quickly, that on on League Two in particular, they've voted, haven't they? To hasn't been ratified. We know that they voted to end the season. What is going to change for those clubs financially between now and September, say, early September, when, when, when the 2020-21 season is due to kick off? What is going to change in their circumstances where they can find a model to pay their players, to bring them out of furlough, etc., and, and to complete a season? I, I just don't think they've tried hard enough here. And, and I'm worried that the precedent that they've set by, by walking out on this season put, puts next season into doubt for them. I really do. I, I just think players could maybe have, have sacrificed more in terms of salaries. Clubs could have worked harder to get games on, to, to, to find a way, a model to make it work. And I also think that, that, that the Premier League, or they could have waited for the Premier League to maybe come up with some money to pay for these tests that are going to cost them X amount, it's a, it's a big cost, I know. But maybe, just maybe, if they'd hung on or had better dialogue, they, they might have found a way where they don't have to have that financial burden. For me, League Two has walked away from it too soon. And I don't know what will justify kicking off the next season because I don't see a lot changing. Hey, I, I was thinking about this this morning. And I mean, I agree with pretty much everything you said there. But then maybe there's... Maybe one of the problems this situation has revealed is that there is no ultimate authority in English football. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are different governing bodies, but their interests overlap. And that's been problematic because there is no one to say 
there is no one, I'm not suggesting that we have a sort of a commissioner style situation, but the channels of authority have got to be a little bit clearer because there needed to be someone in this situation who, who plotted the way forward, who took the responsibility away from the clubs because we know self-interest is always going to be a factor and that's that's the case with players and agents, everybody else who has a kind of vested interest in football or a stake in it. There's not been that body, that authority, that person that can say, right, this is what we're going to do and this is why we're going to do it. I, I fear that... I'm not suggesting that I have the answer. I'm not saying that I, I know exactly what the solution is to this. But we have so many different agendas at every level of the game. Premier, even, even just within the Premier League, even where the finances are such that people could probably make certain sacrifices. If you go further down to, to a League 2, League 1 situation, in League 1, you've got, you've got a little cabal of clubs at the top of the table who, are, who want to do their own thing, who want to supposedly cut off part of the league and, and sort of finish the season on their own it's bizarre and it just makes a little bit of a mockery of our our system of football for want of a better phrase yeah well and basically i think what you're you're articulating there said was you know a, a fairly you know old idea in many ways of having a football commissioner someone who is an independent regulator who can get over the traditional you know, paranoia and, and self-interest that, that basically swirls around you know, the clubs. Are we getting to the stage where the crisis will be so profound that it will completely change the way the game is not just structured, but administered? Mm. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm so glad that Seb brought up that point. I mean, the EFL effectively, they're always at pains, aren't they, to say they're, they're the guardians of the league. But really... The people who control the EFL are the clubs, are the member clubs, the 71. And, and, and in this scenario, that is, that is what's making it so messy. So, yeah, I think the structure of administration in, in football in this country will need to change on the, on the back of this. Do you, you know, should the FA have more power? Should it be a new independent body? Should, should the EFL take full control over, over the situation? rather than, than sort of making all these decisions or opening the floor to, to its members. It, yeah, I think, I think things need to change, Mike. And, and this, unfortunately, this, this horrendous crisis that we're in, a health crisis, has, has just laid bare how, how fragile the old system was and is. Yeah, I, you know, it's not just a, and obviously not just a British problem, is it? You, know, you look at you know, Malaga in the Spanish second division, they are now starting to lay their players off, uh, which one su suspects is, is a taste of what's to come here in the next few months. When you've got so much self-interest, you look at, for instance, you know, we all know that football is a game of whispers and moans and... I was speaking this week to a senior director of a, of a club and he was convinced that one of their rivals had been training behind closed doors, full, full contact, for weeks. Now, I don't know whether that is true or whether that was just, you know, insecurity speaking. But you, when you have that level of mistrust within the game... How can it find the unity that it would need to actually get out of this crisis? What do you think, Seb? No, it, it can't. And this is really indirectly a, another argument for stronger regulation. Fundamentally, I think football at certain levels needs to be protected from itself. 
um, by which I mean it needs to have its certain ambitions taken out of its own hands. So we can't really mention them on the pod, but I think all of us have heard stories about, for instance, why certain wages are paid to certain players in the championship and what a an owner's attitude is towards cost of employment versus revenue, these kind of things. Now, what you've highlighted there, Mike, is really just a, an example of football's paranoia and where and how it exists at nearly every level of the game and how actually in the minds of directors and chairmen up and down the country, certain clubs are always working with, you know, in a sort of clandestine Medal of Honour type way to, to try and undermine each other's interests. And I think the path forward has to be lit by a narrowing of that. So you cannot have... You need greater transparency, that's a given. But you also need to have greater control over what people are spending, what people are doing. It has to almost become not a big brother state, but a situation where there is more transparency. Yes, I can't I can't think of a better way to put it because these are not positive forces within the game. If we're in this situation where you know hundreds of people are still dying a day and people are still leaking out information to the media whereby, well, we think our rival are cheating. You know, rival rivals are cheating and they're doing this and they're doing that. It's just so ugly. I think we're going to, I mean, I can see on this, I think we're going to talk about the situation in Austria because that's another really good example. You said, Mike, it's not just Britain and it's not. This is a cultural problem in the sport. This is how the sport thinks and behaves all the time. Yeah, well, to, to articulate that, Lask, Lintz, the, the Austrian league leaders, have been accused of breaking breaking training protocols in the in the way that you know my um, anonymous um, uh, a director talked about. Now they retaliated by talking of industrial espionage. That is where we could be getting here. It's it's almost sort of you know down the wormhole stuff, isn't it? Eh? Yeah, well, what they're complaining about is that someone broke into their training ground and set up cameras and filmed them effectively breaking the rules. So, so that 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 is that is their situation in a nutshell. And and to be honest, that's super league, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> it is, but it, it it reinforces, I think, the the sense here in this country for Premier League to 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 act like Big Brother. And and we've heard a story on this, haven't we, in terms of. They're going to be spent sending spies effectively to go and watch training or if they can't be there in person to to request video footage of, of sessions to make sure that everyone's following the same rules. Because let, let's face it, I, I, don't, I don't believe for a second that every Premier League manager will want to play by the rules. Some will bend it. Some, some might, will certainly want to break it. I feel for the players and I actually feel for them a bit because at what point, it's not football people that are that are calling the shots here, and sooner or later, in a, you know, in a, in a matter of days, they will be allowed full contact training, and 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 in their eyes, they're probably thinking, well, what if we're being tested, and everything's being regulated, and we're being as clean as we possibly can be, then why can't we just crack on and 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 have this contact training now? So I do feel for them, but but yeah, for, for me, and Seb used the, the phrase "big brother," I think it's the only way really in the short term just to make sure everyone's the same otherwise we're going to get the Bielsa you know derby war flare up aren't we over and over again in the in the Premier League and in the Championship can I, as well. can yeah I, 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 I suppose sorry sorry just one sec uh, Seb you know I suppose I better better say that you know when I interjected there it, it was pretty flippant so um you know tone down the hate on social media please uh, uh Leeds fans uh, sorry Seb go on mate I was just going to chime in on this Austrian thing Mike I 
So I've been following the chain of press releases which have come out of it. Now, I encourage anyone listening to do the same, just Google them, because it's actually nauseating how performative it all is. It's all sort of, right, so they, they, these charges have been made, you know, Lintz have been accused by a variety of clubs of, of, of breaking the social distancing rules and the sort of the measures put in place for training. And in turn, they've responded with, with their the industrial espionage charge. Now, if you actually read what's been said in either language, you just get the sense that you don't care about the, <clears throat> the integrity of the game. This is a PR exercise. Everyone's, everyone's shocked and disappointed, quote. Everyone's, you know, and you just think, you're, you're doing this for my benefit. Your concern is not that the, the game looks dreadful, that the game cannot be trusted to behave like anything other than a, you know, a 12-year-old a that wants to get away without tidying their bedroom in the morning. You know, because ultimately, this is not, the game does not belong to a club. The game does not belong to a, someone who owns a football club. The game belongs to fans. The game's reputation belongs to the people that watch it and sustain it and pay to go and see it. And I'm hacked off with football because it's all so artificial. It's all so fake. Even in this instance, the, the objective isn't to reform or to, to provide some clarity on, on what Lints are doing or what their, their rivals are doing by breaking into training grounds. The objective is to shame people, to, to, you know, to, to score some PR and Twitter points, to be, it's, it's, it's false, it's synthetic, it's, it's, it's absolute nonsense. It's this general theme that's run all the way through of, please, can we have some adults in the room? And I, I, I know Austrian football is not really my territory and it's weird that I should get so worked up about it, <laughs> but it just feels indicative of the mood, Mike. I don't know what you guys think, but it's just like, stop Oh uh, yeah, maybe I'm just going to get more. I'm going to end up swearing if I'm not careful. So some, somebody else start talking. <laughs> yeah. Well, I tell you what. Let, 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 let's be bold and talk about a bit of football, shall we? Um, your star of the lockdown so far. Now, okay, we've had one weekend of the of the Bundesliga. I thought Kai Havertz was sensational on Monday night. Munch and Gladbach, who are now third got Leverkusen on Saturday afternoon. Anyone else catch your eye, Aid, over that? Well, yeah, I think you've picked out the the, the star man, haven't you, from from, from match day one. I, th- I thought the Dortmund were brilliant. Guerrero um, scoring a couple of good goals and, and all round, I thought they were they were very, very impressive. Borussia Dortmund. But Havertz, no, I, th- I think we we talked about him on, on the last pod that I was on. And, you know, he's a, he's a classy operator. I, I've seen him before... In the more in a number ten position, ghosting into the box to score goals. I, I think I described him as being efficient with his runs into the area, but he times them well. And we saw that, didn't we, at, at the weekend? But from a false nine position. So, so yeah, interesting tactical change from from Leverkusen. Two great finishes, and uh, yeah, he's he's a player that that's on the radar of all all the big boys at the moment. And and that game should should be great, by the way. I think. I think München Gladbach were, were good against against Frankfurt. Frankfurt were really poor. I mean, they're a mess at the back. Frankfurt. I, I saw them against Arsenal earlier in the season. Swashbuckling going forward at times, but they, they really defending is is a bit of an after afterthought for for Frankfurt. So so München Gladbach filled their boots, and yeah, I think it'd be a good a good duel actually. Two two good managers as well going head to head. Marco Rose is. Who's who's gaining quite a reputation, I think, with 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 them up against Peter Bosch, who's, who's bounced back well. Uh, Leverkusen, 
after the sort of Dortmund experience. And of course, he was the guy that led Ajax to that that, that Europa League final against Man United. So, so he's a, he's a good, good coach, Peter Boss. So, so yeah, that's that's probably the game of the weekend for me. Yeah, oh, well, Bayern are at home to Eintracht on on Saturday evening. Seb, looking at Bayern, are they capable? Do you think of of a Bundesliga Champions League double? And does the Bundesliga starting earlier than other leagues give them an advantage over the rest of Europe? Oof, uh, certainly capable, Mike. I mean, they're obviously already really past Chelsea. The advantage thing, I don't know. I mean, in terms of conditioning and fitness, you'd expect so. I think the advantage that the Bundesliga might have is uh, with its procedures. This doesn't involve Bayern specifically, but Peter Bosch, there's a little story about him. He he is a um, Leverkusen coach, obviously. He is uh, an asthmatic. And he wasn't wearing his mask in the technical area over the weekend. And the commentator on BT Sports said it was because he, he's so convinced by the procedures that have been put in place around the players that he has full confidence. Now, I think that the advantage in this situation will be had by will be had by by teams, players, managers who feel safest, who feel most like normal, who are allowed to train as if the world isn't suffering with you know what what's currently going through. And I think this is not to sort of indulge the cliche, but this is kind of, this is an example of Germany's ability to do things well, certainly versus what we're seeing in this country and the kind of the doubts that players are articulating in England. I think that's the advantage, because if you can create something which is normal, then, you know, relatively speaking, within this context, that's a, that is a, uh, percentage-wise, I'm not sure what it equates to, but that is a tremendous advantage. Mm. And that's the kind of thing that will uh, count in the Champions yeah. League, I think, if there is one. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. It's a really good point. I think, yeah, comfort in the situation is huge. What I will say is that right now it's an advantage because the, the, the fitness levels are higher, etc. But But, of course, we would expect the Bundesliga now to finish sooner than, than a lot of the other leagues around Europe. And if the Champions League does come at the end, and we're hearing that it's going to take place in, in August, aren't we? That might actually come during a period where Bayern Munich are in effect on holiday. They've, they've done their season. They're, they're waiting for the new season. They're on some sort of... They may have been off for longer than some of the Premier League teams, for example. So, so in, in a way, it might be a disadvantage that they're not in the heat of battle or not coming straight off of the end of their domestic season to compete in the Champions League. And look, if that is the case, then then I'm sure that the German sides would, would have something to say about it. Mm. When we're on Champions League, it's the latest Glory Knights feature on BT Sport uh, at the weekend, featuring Rangers. Four games as per usual, the 3-0 win in Lyon in uh, October 2007, the win at Leeds in 1992... Uh, you were around at that stage, weren't you, Seb? Um, <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Yes. Se- <laughs> Rangers 3, Porto 2 in September 2005, and the 4-1 win over PSV in October 1999. I want to start, if we could, chaps, with the uh, fabled Battle of Britain, Rangers against Leeds, in what was at that stage a rebranded Champions League. I suppose now, you know, it's a long time ago, isn't it? You know, 28 years ago. Do you think the current generation of fans who've grown up in in basically the Champions League and Premier League really understand just how much emotion went into that game? What do you think, Aidan? 
No, they probably don't. It, it, yeah, it's, it's almost a fixture from a bygone age. I mean, 1992 to us, Mike, doesn't seem that long ago. But Yesterday, but in mate. Football in, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but in football in terms, it, yeah, and it's a lifetime ago, it was a level playing field first and foremost. And and I think any any sort of youngster in this country would be thinking, what, England, Premier League and Scottish Premier League size equally wealthy e- equal resources and it's like yeah that actually did happen and 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 that's why this was such a, a big deal at the time that's one of the reasons it was such a big deal at the time of course we were having the premier league was was just coming into into force the champions league as you say we've rebranded it, it was a time of of change and and yeah rangers were were great they were a really good team and they beat a terrific leeds outfit who were defending champions weren't they they won they won the the old first division and uh, they they had a wonderful team so so no it was it was a fixture sort of that at that if it had taken place 5 years later it would have been distorted so it was it's well worth reflecting on on, on the game and also the fact that, that it was rangers that won both legs of that tie, um, and deservedly so. You know, you know what you know. What it makes me think of. I, I rewatched this game last night because I remember watching it at the time, and I'd forgotten all kinds of stuff about it. First and foremost, how good a goalkeeper Andy Gorham was, because I would yeah. say that for a period of about, <clears throat> I think he'd left Hibs in nineteen ninety one, and for a period of about maybe two or three years after that, he was. I mean, I, I would say in the top three in Britain until kind of the mid 90s just an exceptional player and never probably better than in the second leg of that tie I mean the, the saves he made from made a couple of saves from Cantona he made one off a I think he there was a deflection off Richard Goff that's one of the best saves you'll ever see just a really really good goalkeeper that never gets mentioned today which is very strange and actually for if anyone who hasn't seen it have a look at Mark Hately's uh, goal uh, it's, it go. scores in the, oh it's just like people forget how good a player he was as well. Great assist as well for Ali McCoy. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, well, when you think about that partnership, I think it scored six. They they got sixty two goals between them in the previous season, and I suppose when you look at that Leeds side as well, we forget just how good that midfield was in terms of balance. You know, Gary McAllister, Gary Speed, Davy Batty, Gordon Strachan. And, you know, as you, you mentioned, obviously, uh, Seb, you know, Eric Cantona <laughs> hanging around as well. well they, Some team. They had, um, they, I mean, I know he was probably a little bit beyond his best by that point, but they had David Rokas on that side as well. You know, not probably, I mean, his, his knees had seen better days by that point, yes, but still really, really good footballer. And it was, you know, people forget also that that wasn't the ranges of Laudrup and Gascoigne. That was, you know, that area was still to come. So this was a kind of, you know, Ian Durant was in that side. But Coist, obviously, we've spoken about Gorham, Goff. But over those two legs, just a, a really accomplished performance, just a really authoritative performance. Were, as well. were away fans banned at that uh, from from those games? Yeah, yeah, yeah. because yeah, because you've yeah. also got to put into context that was much closer, wasn't it, to 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 the days of where hooliganism sort of blighted the British game. They didn't trust that away fans could participate or or have tickets for those games, which I think is a real real shame. But but in a way, I think that may have added to the drama because it was such a vociferous home support in 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 each of the legs yeah i mean when you think about it that i think the rangers went into that game on the back of 12 straight wins and i suppose you know a lot of rangers fans will be watching these games they'll be almost bittersweet the memories because 
they were the reminders that they were the top dogs in Scotland at that time. And, you know, if you look at the second game, let's look at, which is the, the win in Lyon, you know, that was, they had a really good start to the Champions League that season. I think it was their second win on the bounce. Lyon were League, League 1 leaders at that particular time. When do you actually almost pinpoint Rangers' decline? You know, okay, we've got Celtic winning you know, their ninth title, and we'll talk about the circumstances of that soon. Where did, well, it's a big question, but where did Rangers go wrong? <laughs> well, off the pitch, didn't they? I mean, it, mm. it all went wrong in terms of their, their business model. We know, we know that. I think, but by the, the reason we're talking about this game as a bit of a classic is that by 2007, Scottish football was, was at a disadvantage. They were the minnows on, on the European stage and they were expected to be tonked by Leo, the, the leaders in, in France. And, and yet they went over there and, and outplayed them. It was, a, it was one of those sort of classic away day performances where, you know, had to weather a storm of sorts. But then on the counter, they were, they were they're enigmatic players and they had a few of them at the time. Daniel Cousin, one of them, Demarcus Beasley. These guys came to the fore and had one of, the, one of their hot days. What I think about that game is is that the the, the two Scots led, and they and they really showed showed sort of uh, what they were about. David Weir at the back, you know, coming towards the end of his career, he he, he was he was outstanding. And Barry Ferguson, who I think is, is, gets forgotten a little bit in terms of how good how good he was good as a midfielder. Player, Barry Ferguson, yeah, yeah, I think he could he could have. Could have been a, a bigger star had he come to the Premier League. So look, yeah, he did brilliantly for Rangers. Had he had he been snapped up by a Premier League club quite young, I think we might be talking about him in you know in, in, in having a more lofty career than, than we think now. But he was he was magnificent that night. A real talented midfielder. He was. I mean, in that midfield also. That I mean, Leon were a little bit past their best, but that midfield still contained Janino. Still had players like Govu in front of it. I mean that was uh, that was still that's still a very capable Leon team. It's interesting because it's like it, it almost feels like one of those results that couldn't happen now. Like you didn't, you know. Adrian said like you know it's just one of those nights when 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 Rangers got hot, and I completely agree with him. But in then I suppose thirteen, fourteen years later, if a team like that got hot away to Leon in France, okay, they might lose two one. That's how it feels. I don't know if that's the reality, but as a as a fan. That's kind of the kind of the grinding reality that football's inequalities have created. I don't know if that um, if that mm. makes sense to you guys. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, they had a good run this year, haven't they, in, in the Europa League? I, I commentated on a game in Braga that they that they won, but it, yeah, it, it still felt, and that's Braga, and they're, they're not in the same level as as a Leon, but that felt like a a fairly special performance and, and result at the time, and and really, I, I guess, yeah, Rangers fans of a certain vintage will be thinking, well. We should be beating Braga, shouldn't we? You know, but, but that's not where they are at the moment. Yeah, well, where they are is that the league's been cancelled in Scotland. So, as I said, Celtic's ninth title on the bounce. Hearts have been relegated. Two things really, Seb. One, is it fair? And secondly, does the manner in which it was confirmed in any way compromise the nature of Celtic's achievement? I don't think compromises Celtic's achievement because I could only see their league, their lead at the top of the league growing. I don't think there's anything contentious because obviously the Scottish Premiership has used a points per game model to decide the outcome and there's nothing unfair about that really. Where it does get difficult is obviously with Hearts 
because supposedly their owner, Anne Budge, is threatening some kind of legal action. She makes the point that Hearts' relegation will cost something in the region of £3 million a season, which is a huge amount of money in, in that part of the world. And Neil Doncaster, the CEO of the SPFL, has kind of responded to that by saying that, look, Scottish football doesn't have big reserves of cash. It's not UEFA, we don't have a, or FIFA, we don't have millions of pounds to kind of, to compensate you. So if legal action is forthcoming, and I'm not quite sure what the legal situation would be, but if, if Hearts were to win some kind of judgment, then it wouldn't be the SPFL that were paying out any sort of compensation. It would be the rest of the other clubs, and that would cost Scottish football an awful lot of money. So that I have a lot of sympathy. I, I still think actually that the Scottish Premiership will move to an expanded model to to kind of avoid this sort of situation as a kind of compromise. I think as far as I understand that they would need the consent, the voting consent of 11 of the 12 clubs. I'm happy to be corrected there, but I, I, and I can see that happening. I can, I can see teams from below being incorporated and, and heart staying where they are. I, that, I don't know. Yeah, um, that should happen. That That is the fairest I think method so. here. They, they could easily have caught Hamilton, Ross County or St Mirren. I think, yeah, I think it is an unjust relegation and a perfect opportunity to go through with the re, you know, restructuring of, of Scottish football. The problem is, right, and this, this, is, this, this is at the crux of it, there's not a lot of ambition for a lot of the clubs in the Scottish Premier League in terms of aspiration. A lot of it is survival. And, 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 and in terms of their survival, it's the more often we play Rangers and Celtic, the more cash we get, the, the more able we are to, to sustain ourselves as a club. And, the, you know, hopefully they will vote to, to bring others into the league to make an expanded one. But but if that means they they have fewer gate receipts against Celtic and Rangers, then might not be so keen. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see it develop. I think it should, it should happen. Hearts shouldn't go down here. Too harsh. Where does all this leave Steve Gerrard? said because you know midway through the season he he basically got on level terms with Celtic and then they had a very bad run you know we all know enough about Stephen to actually understand you know the winner within and he will not like what he hasn't liked what's happened in the last few months we looked at this as probably the key element of his managerial apprenticeship can you give us a progress report, Seb? How do you think he's doing and where's he going? Where's he, where he's going is harder to answer. Where he wants to go is you know, kind of self-evident, I suspect. And I'd imagine he'd, he'd want to coach Liverpool in the future. I think the harder question, the more important one here is, what does this do for his short-term future? Because I think Stephen Gerrard has shown up until now that he's a capable coach, that he's able to to be competitive in that league with what is, and you know, I mean, Rangers are an underdog in relation to Celtic at the moment. I'm also, I'm, I'm informed slightly by <clears throat> how his career has progressed up to this point. He wasn't someone who, he didn't jump into a, a senior job on the basis of his reputation immediately. I mean, he started with within, within Liverpool's youth system. He was prepared to do that, which I know should be a prerequisite, but as we know, hasn't been in the past. So, I don't know. I, I think it's going to depend, Mike, on how Scottish football recalibrates when it comes back, in what form, what kind of platform that offers someone like Stephen Gerrard, because his his final objective is not to be Rangers manager. I think that's I don't think that's contentious. I think he is using it as a uh, as a basis to 
to develop his reputation. Whether that's right or wrong is up to the individual. But it's going to be whether he stays there and whether he can continue to to close the gap is going to depend on what comes but sorry my voice is going <laughs> this is the cost of doing too many podcasts i'm, I'm trying to speak and i'm aware that it's creeping up on me and i'm, I'm becoming gradually less audible adrian take uh, over i'll take over i'll take over yeah i'll uh, I'll, I'll briefly take basically i think it depends how bitter he feels about about the situation i don't think he'll be impressed with scottish football the way that they've handled it i think he will hold, hold a grudge Against them, I think he, he, he's a he's a prickly character at the best of times, anyway. So you wonder is it is it taken a bit of the love away from Scottish football that he that he had? I don't know how much love he had for Scottish football, anyway. I think his plan was to stay longer and to potentially win something with Rangers and and to 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 definitely or definitively close that gap on on Celtic, and then it would justify you know potentially taking over from Jurgen Klopp. In the future, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know whether taking another job in potentially in England would be the best move for him. If the end goal is is Anfield, I, I, I would stick it out if I was him. But but yeah, he's, it, it depends whether his head or his heart will 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 take over here. Yeah, great tactical substitution that. Well done, chaps. <laughs> um, the women's game. It, it seems almost certain that the WSL is going to be cancelled. There is some concern, and I think probably justifiable concern, that the women's game, which you know self-evidently has improved massively over the last three to five years, will be left behind because almost of economic circumstance. I think probably we all agree that that would be a terrible thing to happen, I suppose the the realists in us have to ask, will it happen? Now, you know, your club, Aid Arsenal, have this one-club mentality. But do you see any slackening in commitment to the women's game, not just at that club, but generally? No, not really, because I don't think the the costs are that prohibitive for for running a women's Super League club. I I don't think it costs the earth. And that, and I also feel that that if cutbacks are, are needed, then then most of the players will will still stick around and, and and be able to provide the same the same quality. It's yeah, it's it's will the, will they get the TV coverage? Hopefully, yeah. Will, will enough eyes be on on women's football moving forward? And yeah, obviously playing behind closed doors won't won't be ideal for them. I do, I do wonder whether we can have some some form of social distance, you know, fan participation inside football grounds next season. And I'd include the women's, the women's game in that. Maybe that's, that's one way forward. But no, I, look, I, no, I don't. I, I think that there's enough, enough will in football to, to keep the progress going. It's a setback. It's a setback for football in general, isn't it? But, but I don't think this is going to be the death knell for the women's game. Not, not at all. I think we've gone too far for that and and I think there is actually enough interest you know from from the wider public to 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 keep it going and also you know it would be an absolute PR own goal to to suddenly turn turn your back on something that that's proven so popular and, uh, and you've also got to think of the future you know young girls up and down the country their heroes are are women's super league players they the the girls football scene is it's vibrant at the moment 
And, you know, there, there, are, there are hundreds, thousands of, of, of schoolgirls out there that dream of playing in the Women's Super League. And, and yeah, I, yeah I, can't, I can't see those... I can't see football just turning their back on on it. I, I hope I'm right anyway. Maybe maybe I'm being... Yeah, think, maybe it's wishful thinking, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I think if you look at um, the, the Lionesses have... You know, been very proactive on social media, haven't they? You know, projecting what they do and building relationships with fans. That's the sort of grassroots or or bottom line activity that the game needs to actually sustain itself. And so, I suppose, Seb, do you share AIDS optimism? I'd like to. I mean, I suppose this goes back to what we said right at the beginning of the pod, where we talk about you know what happens when clubs are left to act in their own self interest. I like to think that clubs can recognise, and my, I think you've hit on a really good point there, in that it sets a really good example. I think the men's game can learn an awful lot from the women's game in terms of how fans are engaged with, how young players are encouraged, how the pathways are made clear. I mean, the kind of the the community relationships that are forged don't exist in the men's game in the same way. And so I hope that takes precedence. What I What I fear is that, a lot of men's football clubs, they only really became interested in developing women's teams when they worked out how they might be able to make money from them. And so is that is, is that what will end up driving this? I don't know. I mean, I I, I have a suspicion, but I, I hope I'm wrong. I, I, I want to agree with Adrian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We all do. We all do. <laughs> right. Well, so, well... Yeah. So we're, you know, we'll we'll sort of pull all this together and give us another opportunity to agree with Aid. Um, <laughs> thought, our thoughts for the day, um, Aid. What, what's your? Well, I haven't got a, a, a thought-provoking thought for the day, to be perfectly honest. But but just just a couple of things caught caught my eye that we haven't discussed. Sticky footballs, something we never thought we'd we'd hear about. But apparently, this is causing a problem. These disinfected balls that are being sprayed onto the dry turf, you know, that having to, to, to use on a fairly dry pitch is, is an issue. So so we need to we need to find a cure for the sticky football, first and foremost. Um, so that was one thought, just to just to throw out there. The other one is is the FA Cup, what's happening with it? I mean we 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 we're not giving it a mention. We're into the last eight. We've got some big games. If if and we we all hope the Premier League does come back, will we are we looking at the prospect of an FA Cup final at Wembley behind closed doors? I, I personally, I think if we can put on the Premier League, then we can put on, you know, what is it? Four games, six games, seven games in the FA Cup. Surely we can do that. But no one's talking about it. No. Well, I suppose, you know, the, to be honest, the, the FA seems to have been bystanders. They've got some really good people at the FA, but are they actually, are they just being wait, waiting to be reactive to these situations or not? Time will tell, I suppose. Seb, what have you got to get off your chest? Um, I want to. I want people to think before they react to the news of players testing positive for this disease. Obviously, the news came out yesterday that Adrian Mariap has given a positive test, and I very foolishly and naively had a look at the reaction on social media, and um, it kind of made me weep for humanity a little bit because you just think this is a disease; no one is voluntarily exposing themselves to it or becoming infected with it and so when this happens let's direct our anger appropriately if British football is not I know there are instances where players are being a bit stupid Serge Aurier yet again of course 
acting like a bit of a clown, I'm afraid. Do not point the finger at, at, a, at a player without knowing his personal circumstances. If if players aren't being protected properly, if what we have come up with in this country to get football back on again is not sufficient, then those are questions which need to be directed at the architects of that plan. There is a reason why so far these things have worked in Germany and to this point, even with minimum exposure, they, are, they do not seem to be working in England. So let's be kind, let's be gentle and let's also remember that a lot of these, these players, whether they're Premier League footballers and very wealthy or not, they have families too. And let's try and be understanding of, you know, also, people like Troy Deeney, we've mentioned him before, but a lot of what he says makes perfect sense. He's got a newborn child, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> Hundreds of people, Seb, are still being infected each day. Exactly. And not, not all of them are flouting social distancing rules. You can just pick this up, you know, on your front door. Well, potentially, so like, couldn't you? You know, you know or, the- or going to the supermarket. Yeah, let's not, not all judge everybody by Serge Aurier standards. I mean, there's a lot of fullbacks in the country who can who can tackle in their penalty box without giving away a penalty. So we don't judge them on that basis either. <laughs> so by the same lo- by the same logic, let's 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 be kind, let's be considerate, let's appreciate that this is this is really something from which nobody is able to actually even properly hide. And I don't really want to see what I, I saw aimed at Adrian Marapi again. Really shocking. Well, that does lead into really you know, the the point that I want to make, which is it's tribalism. You know, tribalism is one of the curses of the modern game. And look, we all know what I mean. This pathetic pettiness or outright bitterness that you see on social media, all these daft conspiracy theories and cowardly cyber attacks in the name of a club or a player or an idea. It's a nonsense. And it doesn't have to be like that. One thing that struck me in in this whole crisis is the way the food banks movement has shown that football can be a force for good in really changing circumstances. You think about it. Fans from Liverpool, Everton, Manchester City and Manchester United are working together during the pandemic. You know, they're getting involved with protective equipment, not just the normal food parcels that we've become aware of. Now, that set me thinking, is this a model for the potential renewal of the game? It's much more than about your club or your player or your prejudices. It's what the game can do for other people. Just thought I'd leave you with that thought. So thanks to you for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. And please, stay safe out there. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.